imagine this. No, I mean it. I don't care if you're driving, walking the dog, working out, whatever you're doing, just stop for a moment and imagine this. You and a friend are walking by the side of a river. I don't know, maybe you're eating, whatever you want to do. And suddenly you hear a shout from the direction of the water. And you see a child in there and they're thrashing around. Clearly they're struggling. They might be drowning. Without thinking, you dive in. You grab the child, you swim to shore. Crisis averted. But before you can recover, you hear somebody else. You jump in, same thing. Oh my gosh, another one, another one. Now your friend's jumping in. You're going back and forth. You guys are out of breath, but you keep seeing more and more people struggling in the water. You don't know where they're coming from. And then, right when you barely can keep up, suddenly you see your friend coming out of the water and sprinting off into the woods, seemingly leaving you alone to help all these people. You ask them where they're going and they simply answer back, I'm going upstream to tackle the person who's throwing these kids in the water. Now that sounds dark and maybe it is, but it's a little bit of a parable from the medical community that talks about how so many people focus on downstream issues, meaning they try to figure out how to cure quote unquote symptoms and they don't look upstream at real the, where the real issue is occurring. And guys, it happens in so many fields. In this episode, you're going to hear me and uh, our, our guests talk about a lot of different things. And these things are only impactful if we recognize and we realize that it's not enough to just solve the after effects of an issue. We have got to solve upstream problems. It's exactly what I'm trying to do with our Art of Coaching Apprenticeships. I can give people all the tools, things on personality traits, things on how environment impacts behavior, coaching evaluations. I can give you uh, the best questions to ask to figure out people's drives. I can give you conflict resolution strategies, but ultimately none of it matters if you don't work on becoming a better and more adaptive communicator. And that's exactly why at the apprenticeships, we use improvised strategies because coaching and leadership is regulated improvisation. Guys, you never know what's going to happen to you day in and day out. You might have an idea, but you really have no clue. That's why they always say, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Life is improvisation. Leadership is improvisation. Almost every field uses role-playing and improv to some degree, yet coaches often abstain from it. That can change. I want you to go to artofcoaching.com backslash events And I want you to find an apprenticeship near you because we need to solve upstream issues. Collecting more tools, just reading books, all these things don't matter. Becoming, if you don't become a more dedicated practitioner of how to use them. Our next one, and we're excited about it, is in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's Saturday and Sunday, April 18th and 19th. Again, these are for every profession. Our last one in Winnipeg, We had school teachers, we had phys ed teachers, we had business owners, we had strength coaches, we've had folks in the FBI. You've heard me say this again and again and again. We have so many different people coming, but these are also people who are seeking a safe place to fail because they want to put skin in the game. They don't want to hide. They're not just looking for a tool. They're not looking for a cheat sheet. They actually want to be exposed and become better amongst a group of peers. And I'm asking you to be a part of that. I deeply respect all of you, but I really challenge you to get out of your comfort zone. Remember, the research shows, and we've talked about this, and I'm happy we provide the, we provide all the references for this. Out of 285 coach development workshops and counting, fewer than 6% focus on interpersonal skills. That's an issue. It is a major, major issue, and we've got to solve that. Help us solve upstream issues. Help, help us solve the actual core of the problem. Because otherwise, if we keep waiting downstream, none of these tools are going to matter. They're not. Got to get your hands dirty. Listen, I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. Rachel is an incredibly special person. We met quite a while ago. This interview happened, I would say, eight or nine months ago. And I've been chomping at the bit to get it out. It's a big reason why we've been dropping two episodes a week for quite some time. We're actually trying to get caught up because... uh, You know, there's so many great things that we want to bring to you, but she is a woman that I deeply respect because she does not talk in generalities. She will go down some rabbit holes 
And if you have the chance to connect with her and meet with her and study her work, I highly recommend it. Without further ado, guys, I'm bringing you Rachel. Enjoy this episode. Please leave your feedback and leave an iTunes review if you're loving it. If you don't have an iPhone, send it to three friends. All these little things help tremendously support small businesses like ours. We're trying our best to get better and provide you with value. All right, Rachel, take it away. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me, and now let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Art of Coaching Podcast. I'm here with Rachel Yanez. She is a performance expert that coaches servicemen and women in evidence-based ways to help them optimize themselves physically uh, from a cognitive standpoint and also from a relational standpoint. Rachel and I met uh, initially when I was down in Hawaii uh, coaching or speaking at a workshop, and she has a master's in psychology. She specializes in behavior change, and she's also a certified personal trainer amongst one of the most interesting conversationalists I have ever met in my life. Rachel, welcome to the show. Wow, Brett, way to set the bar high. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's my pleasure. I mean, it was a no-brainer just on some of the discussions that we had uh, after I presented down there and your mutual interest in topics such as motivation and flow and connection and the unique work you do with the military and also the way that you represent it just in your everyday conversation. I mean, I think the way that what stood out to me most when I when I met you initially is how well you listened, how uh, how fluidly like you summarize what you just heard and how you respond in a really like thoughtful way, but also like you are one of few uh, people that I think like you could speak incredibly direct and almost say something offensive to somebody and still make them feel awesome. Like you're just a truly, truly <laughs> skilled communicator. And that's a lot about what this show is about. So if you wouldn't mind, you know, it's, it's a lot like in terms of what you do and working with servicemen and women, and especially in, in topics like motivation, flow, connection, and psychology. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a performance expert. And as you mentioned, I work with soldiers and we help them develop their edge. Basically, resilience and performance concepts are based a lot on performance psychology and sports psychology. And a huge element to any team is the ability to communicate effectively. I would definitely say that that has been one of my major focuses my last 10 years in the field is how to really listen effectively, reflect back what you've heard, and just through modeling that with soldiers, they're incredibly sharp. They pick up on how essential communication is, especially in high-risk environments. It's really important that we understand one another communicating. So that's one major part. Um, another major part, as you mentioned, is human motivation. Um, when we are doing what we love, nobody has to tell us to do it, right? That's intrinsic motivation. We do something just because we naturally enjoy it. Unfortunately, a lot of our jobs involve doing stuff that we don't necessarily enjoy. And especially with leaders and coaches and mentors, people that I know listen to your podcast are included in that. We really need to get good at understanding what motivates the people that we're working with. And that involves getting to know them on a personal level. So there's that connection element, so it's communication, it's connection. And a lot of it is, is guidance in performance metrics, like con controlling your thoughts is a big part of what we do. A lot of mindset stuff, you know, where, where your focus goes, energy flows. So if you're thinking, don't fuck up, don't fuck up, don't fuck up. Your your brain doesn't get don't. Like this might tell you don't picture a pink elephant. Brett, what are you picturing right now? You're going to think of a pink elephant. Right, exactly. And so really just knowing what we know about the way the brain functions, we coach soldiers in how to think most effectively so that, that they can perform their jobs well, but also take some of these concepts home their their family life which is also important for their readiness and I think what what intrigues me about that and I'd be interested in your like in the context of how 
the work that you do daily, how you define motivation. Really what I go off of is uh, Cheryl Coker, who has a background in motor learning. The best definition I found, at least in the context that I work with, is it's an internal condition that incites and directs one's action or behavior. But would you say that, you know, directing action and behavior are one thing, and it may seem that focus is inherently included in that, but not always necessarily, right? Like, because people can be motivated to do things that, uh, and, and they do them, but they maybe don't do them with tremendous focus. Is that right or wrong? And then if that's right, like how can we add a deeper focus to that part of the equation? I think that's absolutely right. We're, you know, we're limited in terms of where our attention can be. Our attention can only be one place at one time. A lot of people think that they can multitask and do multiple things at once, but really what it's called is attentional shifting. Uh, based in large part by Nidafer's research. And we can half-ass things, and we do all the time, and that's where motivation comes in, right? When you truly care about what what workout you're doing, what skills you're working on developing, you're going to be fully focused. Your attention is going to be there, and you're going to have that sense of full emergence. Except me high calls that slow, right? When you are immersed in a task, your challenge to skill ratio is appropriate. And just by the nature of that full focus, it's a highly enjoyable experience. So my answer is absolutely people do stuff all the time. They're not focusing fully on. And that's where leadership becomes super important because if we know what's important to them, we can craft an environment for them, a training environment for them that leverages what is meaningful to them. And that really amplifies their motivation to perform at their best. And I'm glad you went there in terms of talking about the creation of an optimal environment or or something that can leverage that uh, that outcome a little bit more. Can you describe, I know this is pretty broad, but can you give some examples of how you shape that environment or what that kind of optimized environment would look like uh, to facilitate better flow and focus and all of those elements? Absolutely. So one of the projects I'm working on right now is with a patient administration office on Schofield Barracks, which is an army base out here in Hawaii. And and these folks have a very um, tough job. Their job is to put in data all day long, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. Talk about a mundane task, right? right? It's repetitive. And mo- motivation for that is is understandably low. And so what we're doing with this this group of folks is we're getting to know them on a personal level, what's important to them. And Those that enjoy their job the most also perform the best, and their answers are very different from the answers of people that aren't fully engaged in the workplace. Answers like, I get to help people get their medical records. I get to assist them in their PCS process. Essentially, they're focusing on what they're giving to others, and that by its nature is enjoyable for them. So their, their experience in the workplace is much different than people that think it's just a nine to five job. I clock in, I clock out. It's not really meaningful to me. Well, and, and so in terms oh, no, of, so in terms of crafting an environment that focuses on the importance of internal motivation, we just access their character strength. So some people are incredibly, gifted at judgment and critical thinking, and they like to look at things from multiple angles. Some people are more playful and score higher in humor and playfulness. Some people are high in social intelligence. Some people are high in perseverance or prudence, caution, best, enthusiasm. So really, that human element is essential to crafting a work environment that leverages the strength in every individual and really results in a more cohesive team that performs at a much higher level than environments where there is a a lack of motivation. Well, and, and, and with that, I mean, and, and you'll, you'll be up more up to date on the statistics than, than I am. But I remember just from my time of working with, with operators and it's something I still do, but I remember last year, some of us and I were talking and they were talking, these folks who had been in, in special forces had said, you know, within the last five or even 10 years, there's been unprecedented levels of things like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, suicide, anxiety, all these different 
mental health related issues. And when you think of flow and when you think of some of the stuff that I don't really think it's funny, I feel like uh, chicks at me work gets talked about in terms of productivity and everything like that a lot, but not so much happiness and not so much mental well-being, which to me seems like wrong. Like it should be because that's a lot of what it was associated with early on, right? Like he would say like the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. Like one, I guess my question is twofold. Are we still seeing those major issues uh, w- with kind of mental health within uh, soldier fitness or, or that kind of uh, that population? And two, what, what have you been able to do from a flow standpoint to help with that and to intervene and to help them with coping strategies or just kind of making sure they get out of their own way and they keep a proper perspective to be able to fulfill their duty? Mm, I love that question. And it really is relevant today. Um, Nationally, we have a crisis of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. And that is, it, that is true within the military as well. Unfortunately, there are a lot of soldiers that struggle with, with depression and struggle with meaning. And in terms of um, work with PTSD, that's, that's a huge focus right now in in all branches and the role that we play in that is working with individuals to harness their strengths, right? So when people are not connected, we know that they have a major need that is not being met. Humans basically have three needs. Um, It's called CAR as an acronym for those people who like acronyms for remembering. One is competency. I know how to do my job. I know how to do it. One is autonomy. I choose to do it. And the third is relatedness. I am connected to those I do it with and those I do it for. And for, for people that are struggling um, with mental health concerns, I think one or more of those basic human needs are missing. And so when I'm talking with soldiers, I, I want to I hear from them. What do they feel that they have agency? Like, what are they choosing to do? What do they love to do? Who are, who are their confidants? One of the really sad statistics in our nation right now is back in the 1980s, they took a national poll and asked individuals, how many people do you feel you can call right now and take into your confidence that they'll be there for you? And the average answer was about three, maybe one to three. You do it today or, well, 2014, but for all intents and purpose, purposes, we use that data. Um, the majority said that they had nobody. Nobody. They had nobody. They nobody zero. And just on a human level, that that breaks my heart. Well, what do you attribute that to? So, I mean, is there the stigma within the military, yeah. or where? Do, I'm I'm sure you're going there, but what do you attribute that to mainly, or what do they attribute it to? I think so. That was a national poll, and I attribute it in large part to social media. Really, I do. I think that these little technological devices we hold in the palm of our hand were designed with the intent to connect. But unfortunately, connection only meets our basic need of relatedness when it is authentic. And Brett, I can, I can like your, your photo of that cute little kettlebell birth announcement, pregnancy <laughs> announcement, and Feel, you know, and feel warmth in my heart for you, but on your end, that's just a like. You know, I'm not calling you up on the phone and saying, congrats, this is so exciting, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting the little one, like, tell me your plans. And so it's really unfortunate we're defaulting to interacting with one another on a very flat platform, which is social media, which is text messaging. People aren't comfortable picking up the phone and having conversations anymore, even on the telephone, let alone in person. And so we're starved for authentic connection. And it's so ironic to me because we've never been more technologically connected than any other time in history. It's fascinating. And bringing it to the military, what's additionally challenging with this population is the transient nature. They're moving every two to three years. So they're meeting new leadership every two to three years. They're having, you know, new colleagues, new soldiers they're working with every two to three years. And it's really difficult. And if you have family, that means that you're uprooting a whole household, new schools, your spouse is looking for new employment. That's a stressor, let alone moving 
moving in in and of itself is a stressor. So this population especially is struggling with, you know, all of the things that civilians, you know, struggle with people like you and I, and then the very nature of the military beast is just constant movement, which doesn't really allow for, for true connection. Well, and so with that, and it's funny, I have this statistic in front of me. It says, in 1946, the Veterans Administration faced with an estimated 40,000 war casualties launched a major program to fund training for new clinical psychologists, because obviously uh, they found that there was a need. Now, but you and I both know it's one thing to have people with these kinds of skill sets on hand, right? It's another thing for somebody to, to take full advantage of them. And this is a demographic, speaking of the military, that we've typically heard terms like mental toughness, right? These bastardized terms and everything that mm-hmm. people have kind of thrown around. And, and there's this stigma of these are the people that serve our nation. They're not supposed to talk about weakness. They're not supposed to talk about these things. So, and I think there's a lot of re- relatability here in coaching, right? Like there's people that want to reach out. Like I, I know a coach, Rachel, who he works in a high school and there's been a lot of suicides there recently in the high school he works at. And he, he wants to stay in his ethical scope, but he also knows that teachers need to be having these conversations, but kids, especially teenagers aren't forthright about what's troubling them. And I imagine that's only multiplied in the military. So how, how do you take this population that tends to internalize so much of this and has to meet this stigma and this ideology of, of you know, we've got to tough it out. We've got to deal with our own issues. How do you break this down for them so you can get them to open up? Yeah. Have there been some strategies that have been helpful for you or others like yourself? Yes, I think one of the strategies or the strategy that's been most effective for me in my work with soldiers and my work with civilians is we're just human beings, right? There's, there's that human element. And so when I sit down with a human being, I'm talking with a person. And I value connecting with them. I develop rapport. I show genuine interest. And I also create an opening for, for real talk. I think a lot of times people can default to everything's great. How are you? I mean, how many times have you asked somebody, how are you? And they respond with, you know what, Brett? I'm not so great. Today. Yeah, not not very many people will do I'm that. Not, no, they don't. And so we, you know, we're just living quiet lives of desperation. You know, basically, we're we're not really being open with one another. And what I create is a space for that human being I'm working with to be open with me, not just about what's not going well, but also what is going well. I I'm a strength. I want to find the strengths in individuals because work by people like Martin Seligman, one of the founders of positive psychology, has shown me that if we spend as much time focusing on what is good within us, the strengths within us, as we do discussing our, our pitfalls, our shortcomings, that something really interesting happens. We amplify our strengths, and by the very nature of that, our weaknesses tend to get worked on as a byproduct of that. And, and so just bringing it back to Yeah, no, keep, no, you keep going. I was just, I was going to, I think I was going to ask you exactly what you're going to speak to now. So by all means, keep going. Okay. So when I create a space for authentic conversation, nine times, 10 times out of 10, the human being I'm sitting with, opens up. We want to be heard. We want to be seen. It's a, it's a basic human need to, to feel connected, to feel relatedness, right? And all they need is the opportunity. All they need is that opening. I've worked with private, fresh out of AIT school, and I've worked with commanding officers that have been in the military for over 30 years. One, in fact, Brett, which is currently reading Conscious Coaching, <laughs> oh, and he was thrilled... Yeah, he was thrilled to hear I was going to be on your podcast. Um, but when you create a space for authenticity and you do it well, people usually rise to the occasion and really open up with you about what's going on. And that in and of itself can help them deal with whatever wounds they're dealing with 
feel more agency, feel more power and control over their ability to improve whatever is not going well. And they just feel seen and heard and supported. And oftentimes that's all we need. We just need to feel supported and seen. So let's think of it this way, right? Like if I, if I was a member of the, the military and I'm trying to work through some of these issues, these unprecedented rates that, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Martin Seligman because right that, that was where I learned a lot more about this. I mean, during my time at uh, one of my previous employers, we were part of an initiative called POTIF, Preservation of the Force and Family. And that was more focused on making sure people came back and physically they were good, right? They they could kind of return to a certain quality of life. But it was Martin Seligman that first kind of exposed me to kind of this comprehensive soldier fitness and the role of psychology. But let's imagine I'm somebody that's dealing with these issues and you and I are sitting across from each other like we were when I was in Hawaii and I just don't want to open up, right? Kind of like that that kid that doesn't want to talk about his issues or like that, that Wolverine archetype that I talk about in conscious coaching. is. And I, and I know you said your role is kind of like, hey, I try to remove this stigma and just let them know like we're just human beings, right? I try to let them know like human to human, mm-hmm. person to person, you don't need to be, mm-hmm. you know, this soldier right now, like o- open up, but I'm still not budging. What are some other things that you go to? What are some other strategies that somebody listening who may be trying to reach out to somebody who doesn't want to open up about something they're dealing with? What can they, what can they default to? Yeah, I've definitely worked with my fair share of Wolverines. (laughs) Um, Love that archetype from conscious coaching. It's great. You know, we don't always have to talk about the deep end. Sometimes it's just about shared positive experiences. So we'll, you know, we'll, I've worked with clients, Sometimes it's about jumping off a rock into the ocean together, you know, and some of the folks that are working with PTSD veterans take their soldiers and Marines and sailors surfing. It's not always about talking about the issues. Sometimes it's just about going out there and having fun and remembering that life is beautiful and, and feeling adrenaline and having a good time having shared positive experiences. So, yeah, I definitely don't want to give the impression that it's all, you know, let's sit down and talk about what's going on. A lot of it is very performance focused. Like soldiers want to max out their APFT. They want to, you know, pass ranger school. They want to go to selection. They want to go to the lightning academy. They want to go to jungle school. And those are really fun conversations because those people are already interested in how to optimize their performance. And so we'll talk about things like stress mindset. Ali Crumb out of Harvard University has done some fascinating research about how our mindset about stress affects us on the cellular level. So, you know, sometimes we'll just dazzle them with cool science stuff, right? Like there's this thing called the growth index, and it is a ratio of our DHEA to cortisol levels. A lot of us are familiar with cortisol. It's a stress hormone. But DHEA is also a stress hormone. It's actually a neurosteroid, and it does exactly what it sounds like. It's like a steroid for your brain, and it amplifies its ability to learn and grow from stressors. And individuals that have a stress-is-enhancing mindset, their growth index is optimized for performance. Other folks that saw stress as harmful as a threat to their well-being that growth index is all out of whack because their DHEA levels were low and their cortisol levels were sky high. So sometimes it's talking about, you know, not not what's going wrong or what you're struggling with. It's about talking about some of the human performance concepts that, that really energize anyone interested in personal growth. Soldiers, athletes. Teenage athletes, you know, all the way up to the professional level, people gen- generally are really interested in a lot of this stuff. So that's oftentimes my end. That's where I begin. I begin with the performance stuff, which is really exciting and energizing. And usually just through the rapport development, we get to some deeper issues, maybe struggles at home with a spouse or a kid or struggles with leadership or struggles with a sense of meaning. Maybe they're in a job they don't love. And that's that's typically where these conversations go once rapport is established, whether you're a Wolverine or not, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm 
I'm glad to hear you say that you kind of talk about the performance side because it's also tied in. But like, just like we talk about physiologically, right? The human, it's hard to build um, performance on top of a foundation if somebody doesn't have some basic wellness, right? And we're talking about whether that's their body, like if they're broken down, if somebody comes and they've had all these surgeries and they've had all these issues, it can be really hard to build a high performing body, right? Relatively speaking, we can do that. Everybody can overcome something, but it's even more so in the mental space. Now, when it comes to situations requiring mental performance, whether that's problem solving, writing, strategizing, creative thinking, um, as opposed to physical performance, like what would you say to people that say, ah, that space is interesting, but it's also muddy to me because it's difficult to objectively evaluate the level or quality of mental performance. Whereas, right, like our physical performance, you can look at weight lifted, uh, points on the scoreboard, you know, competing against the clock. What do, you, what do you say to people that still think like the mental and the social side is really just a soft skill and it's it's opaque? Mm-hmm. Yes, I I love that question. And definitely that's one of the challenges with the cognitive side of things, right? It's, it's not as quantifiable as a one rep max deadlift. It's not as quantifiable as your fastest two mile run. However, we do have a lot of um, ways to establish whether or not someone is, is resilient, how they handle challenges, do they lean into it, do they try to get out of it, And just to really capture something, as you were speaking, one phrase really came to mind for me, and it's a mental picture that works for me with my work with soldiers. And the reality is performance is built on the foundation of resilience. I like that. If somebody is resilient, and by by resilience, I mean the ability to come back from adversity, the ability to face adversity, bounce back is a common phrase. But it's not just about bouncing back from challenges. It's about thriving. A, a well-balanced life, a holistic life, meaning you're, you're spiritually well, you're physically well, you eat the right foods, you sleep properly, you have a sense of meaning in your job, your career, you're connected to people. All of those things are the foundation upon which sustainable performance is built. And so when I'm... When I'm dealing with leadership, I want to know, Rachel, how are you going to demonstrate the efficacy of your work? I tell them it's the same metric, right? If the soldier wants to max out his APFT, he's going to have to have the mental side of his regimen tip-top shape as well, right? Because when you're, when you're physically exert, exerted past the point of anything you've been before, you rely on your mental ability to just push through, embrace the suck, right? And so the cognitive end of things really is reflected in those quantifiable performance metrics. You just have to document properly, you know, the, the strategies, the interventions that we're using and see, okay, so this was their pre-intervention data and this is their post-intervention data. I'm working on a project right now called Keeping Operational Athletes Co-op and we took a group of soldiers and we had them get their body fat measured. We had them get their resting metabolic rate measured. We had them do a VO2 sub-max test. We took a look at their fitness metrics. We had them take a sleep sleep survey, the ISI, Insomnia Sleep Index, and we had them take a pre-COA APFP. We collected all of that data. We gave them some education about nutrition, sleep, exercise, and human motivation. That was my presentation. Human motivation and why any goal you name has to be personally meaningful to you. And every week over the course of the pilot, it's going to be about five weeks, I call them and I check in. Hey, how's it going? I see your goal is 10% body fat. Like, What's going well? What's not going well? How can you make some adjustments here and there to really improve what you've done this week and next week's performance? And I'm really anticipating, and so far the data suggests, that intervention in terms of like mental coaching is going to see remarkable benefits in their, in their goals, their APFC scores, their body fat scores, their VO2 submax scores. 
And I'll, I'll have to give you an update about how the pilot goes when we have that data. But they're connected. The mental side and physical side are inseparable. Hey, everyone. I have to pause for a moment to let you know about something new that our sponsor has put out. Momentus has created a tremendous research-backed potent approach to inducing and maintaining quality sleep. It is simply called nighttime recovery. And as with everything from Momentus, it is NSF approved, it is uh, informed choice approved, GMO and gluten-free, and it is incredible. Sleep is one of the things I struggle with the most. I'm naturally a little bit of an anxious person, meaning like it's hard for me to turn my brain off. I just can't do it, you know? And it's tough because I've tried a lot of different things. I don't, I'm not somebody that really likes taking anything, but when they came up with this and it was literally all natural, NSF, informed choice approved, this is what I take with me when I'm on the road, especially when I'm crossing time zones. This is what I take. I I have a whole routine around this. So I encourage you to go to livemomentous.com. Be sure to use code BRETT20. Again, that's B-R-E-T-T-20 and check out their new sleep nighttime recovery. You will not regret it. All right, back to the episode. Yeah. And I think that's something that people often miss is when they talk about, you know, any, anything within the social sciences or psychosocial domain, they think it's a soft science. And I I look at what you just said, almost like marketing, right? Like we know that there's tremendous research out there in the marketing literature in, in terms of how many times people need to be exposed to a certain message and how many times they need to do this and the role of advertising. And, you know, although it can be tricky because you don't know if, you know, Doritos can spend $5 million on Super Bowl advertising. And at the end of the day, they can't tell if somebody watched that commercial and then immediately converted into a sale. But they do know off trends and figures, the engagement rates and and all the other things that go into making that decision to even create a Super Bowl or to even create a, a commercial to be shown at that time, right? They have data and statistics that say, hey, here's our core demographic. And even though we can't tell if they run out to the store right then at halftime, we do know who our primary buyers are. They certainly have that data. I mean, I can go onto Instagram and look at, you know, who, how many men and women follow me, what parts of the world. Like I know my primary demographic are, you know, I have followers from the United States and then I think next is Australia and then the UK. And then finally after that is South America. And I think people miss that, you know, all these things are are not only interconnected, but the data is there. The data is absolutely there Mm -hmm. that shows these key tie-ins. I mean, even look at something as banal as like the role of of music in terms of rate of perceived exertion, right? That music, it, there, there's a psychometric kind of uh, piece there that is influencing how hard we think this activity is. And that's how we can influence motivation at acute levels. So it always surprises me when people say uh, it's an acute change and I, or uh, it's a soft science. I don't think they're aware of the small little nudges that go on daily that that are the key bolsters to or depressants to um, to our physical performance. Is there anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I do. I just usually they just haven't read the studies, right? Because the science is there. We've established that the mind and body are connected, and in fact, the mind changes the body. There is a fascinating study that Dr. Ali Krem did with um, house. Uh, hotel maid and she told one group of hotel maid you should exercise it's good for your health and she told another group of hotel maid did you know that your job qualifies as exercise you meet the, re- the daily requirements of physical activity this is going to be really good for your health that was her only inve- her only intervention telling one group what you do for work is exercise she told the other group you should exercise at the end of her study they hadn't changed any of their behaviors they were still eating the same foods. Their, their daily activity levels were the same. Nothing had changed but their belief about their physical exercise while at work. The group that was told it counted as exercise lost body fat, particularly around their abdomen, had a higher quality of life in general, and reported enjoying their job more. And the only difference is they were told their job counts as exercise. And it's, there's, there's so many studies, and I don't want to bore your listeners, but um, there was another study she did about milkshakes, and what they believed was in the milkshake literally determined their blood profile of ghrelin, which is a, a hunger hormone, essentially. Yep. 
And so we know that the science is there, right? The, the science is there, but there's this old mentality of like, just run through it. It doesn't matter what your thoughts are, just push your body to the max. But we know that that's ass backwards. It's all about where is your head at while you're performing, while you're prepping for a performance. That is really where the meat and potatoes are. Yeah, no, and, and I like that you bring up the studies. I mean, there's a well-defined study in, in 1981 by McGuire that talks about persuasion as a 12-step process. And the reason I look at persuasion here is because this is oftentimes how these these things that are seemingly hidden dramatically impact this stuff that we can measure in a, in a myriad of ways. But, you know, even going back to the advertising example, because you're, you're not just, I think people forget that oftentimes when it comes to motivation, you're advertising to yourself, right? Like if I need to get, uh, there are people that will play hype up music. There are people that are wear certain kinds of clothing when they go to speak. There are all kinds of routines that people partake in before they go to bed at night or before they go to work. All of this stuff is to try to get yourself into a certain mental state. And that's when these, uh, that's when these chemical changes take place in the body. So these 12 step process, if I remember it correctly, it's like exposure to the me- uh, a message, you know, actually attending to the message now I'm interested in it because I'm really paying attention. Then it's, do I understand it? Do I learn how to process it and use it? Do I memorize it? Do I retrieve it? Like it's all these little things that go through these step-by-step processes. And I think that's what performance is built on. It's built on a process-oriented P, uh, a process-oriented foundation, like you said, but it all starts with some kind of change in behavior, attitude, perception, uh, or, or something in, in the psychosocial space. And I think that the most profound thing that that study captured is the importance of not only attending to information, but being interested in it. Because what we know today is we're drowning in, we are drowning in information. We know what we should eat. We know what we should be doing for our workouts. We know what our sleep should look like, right? We know all that stuff. We're drowning in information, but we are starving for motivation. And the best coaches, the best coaches, individuals, professionals like you understand the motivation element. They got to want to, you know, athletes that are really successful usually are those individuals that love what they do. They love the sport. It's an art to them. It's an art and a science. And they do it because they have really, they perform as well as they do because of their motivational routine. They know how to get themselves into that cognitive state where their brain is releasing this chemical cocktail of endorphins and dopamine and serotonin and epinephrine and all those really feel-good hormones that prime them to perform well and enjoy themselves while they're doing it. Yeah, I, th- I think there's 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 a lot to dive in on, on that piece. And I mean, listen, like at the end of the day, like when you look at this stuff and I and I tie in influence and persuasion in there as well, because, you know, like persuasion can be defined as this voluntary change in beliefs, attitudes or others. But I think people don't understand how that's also then like different than influence, like influence often takes place at a subconscious level, right? Like in, at the end of the day, like mm-hmm. if like I, the easiest way to think of it and what made the most sense to me when I was learning going down this motivation, persuasion, influence rabbit hole is persuasion is successful influence, right? Like the notion of success is embedded. Like it doesn't make sense to say I persuaded them to do it, but they didn't. But you could say I influenced them or I tried to influence them, but they still didn't do it. You know, and I think getting people clear clarity on that and helping them even understand, Rachel, that the literature defines these things. Motivation is not something that is like, oh, there's no definition for this persuasion. So when I, I think it always just made me really angry and a bit <coughs> defensive, excuse me, when people would say these are soft skills. It was like, no, the research is out there and this is affecting your ability to coach people and to communicate or within the military perspective, like we started talking about earlier, the mental health issues, like from, from root to the fruit, whether it's performance, mental health, and the two being integrated, if you don't understand these elements, uh, you know, it, it, gets, it gets really tricky. My question, my, the, kind of the next place I want to take this, and feel free to, to address anything I left out on that if you want, is, you know, it, it, you're doing some tremendous work in the military space. Now, a lot of this podcast is, is lessons from the weight room to the boardroom and the classroom. I'd ask this, 
Do you think a lot of these things that we're talking about and that you're specializing in also manifest themselves in uh, the highest level of, of the corporate realm in that boardroom with with high level, high performing executives, or even in in what we're seeing with education right now. How would you extrapolate what you've seen in the military with some of the things you've seen in uh, education or other realms? I'm glad you asked that, Brett, because really it gets down to if you are a human being, the skills I train are for you. So whether it's in the weight room, the boardroom, or the classroom. We all are homo sapiens, as far as I know, and so we know certain things about the way the brain works, right? We understand that there are heuristics, like shortcuts the brain takes without our conscious awareness of it that influence how we perceive situations, how we're motivated to do or not do something. And so, you know, how we give praise matters as coaches, as leaders whether we're in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, or work with military members. And one of the things I really wanted to offer your listeners today is a bit about how we give effective praise really influences the sustainability of good performance in our athletes, our soldiers, our students, and our subordinates in the workplace to bring it to hit all those targets, all those um, demographics. And a lot of people tend to say very flat compliments, like, good job, that was awesome, good report, good set, you know, ask the graph, well done. But there's some research that shows that it's super, super important that when we give those we lead praise, we need to name the specific strategy that they use. Like, what are we actually talking about? What what was the strategy, the effort, or the skill that led to that good outcome? And what this does is it demonstrates that you are really watching. It demonstrates authenticity. And most importantly, it enables winning streaks. So when you're coaching somebody, highlight what they did well. What it does is it amplifies it in their mind. This works. Do it again. And as a bonus, what it does is it promotes connecting because it says this person really cares about my performance and is really watching me to help me optimize what I do. And I think that that's something I want to make sure that everybody heard that, right? She was talking about how we give praise matters. And that seemed like, like Rachel said, that seems super common. Uh, but it's funny, like I'll go down and uh, one year I was going down to a training camp at an NFL team. And a good buddy of mine was a head strength coach there. And he's like, you know, kind of watch this. And he was pointing out the position coaches. And this is stuff that we've all seen. But you know, these position coaches that were paid at the highest level are sitting there like fast feet, fast feet, fast feet, chop, 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 stay low, stay low, good, good, good. But there was none of that. There was none of that, Rachel. None of that personalization, the specific mm-hmm. strategies, not saying, hey, great low center of gravity. Nice job mm-hmm. keeping your back flat. Nice job squaring up for the tackle. Nice job doing this. Whatever those things are that can get really easily lost, I think, amongst people that view themselves as skilled coaches because it's that Dunning-Kruger. They assume that because they've said it, Hmm. somebody else knows. And so, you know, I I think that's probably, uh, that's something that I hope most of you listening, like you you have written that down. Like when you guys are coaching today, when you're leading today, you need to, you know, if you say good or if you say nice job or any of these things, you gotta gotta keep yourself honest. Like good job of what? I, I tell all my athletes say that. I go, don't, don't let me get by with crap like in generic coaching. And that was something I didn't catch myself on until I started recording more of my sessions. I'm like, oh my gosh, I say this all the time. And this was a few years ago. And so it just became something where if somebody came to shadow, I'd be like, hey, don't let me, you know, let me know if I say this. Or an athlete, I'd be like, hey, I'll do five push-ups, you know, if if I do that. And that's a critical piece. What really drew your attention to that? When did you start really noticing um, you know, the way, uh, like the way the generic kind of forms of praise and how detrimental that can be. And is it something you feel like people need to be coached up on? Like what percentage of coaches or, or practitioners do you think do this inherently well? I know that's a total just guess, but mm-hmm. talk to me about more of your observations in that space. Yeah, sure. So last question first, I would say most of us miss the mark at least some of the time, Right. And what really originally turned me on to the importance of effective praise was when I read Carol Dweck's book called Mindset. And Carol Dweck has done a ton of research with 
how mindset is influenced by praise received. She took a group of fifth graders, about 400 of them across the United States, gave them all a pretty basic IQ test, and she gave half of the group praise that identified this. Wow, you're really smart. Good job. She gave the other half of the group praise that sounded like this. Wow, you must have worked really hard. Well done. And she labeled these two groups the intelligence group and the effort group. And what was fascinating is after they were given their praise, they were given the option. Do you want a hard test? It's going to be challenging, but you're going to learn and grow. Or do you want to take a test similar to the one you just took? And you're sure to be successful on that one. 67% of the group that was complimented on their intelligence chose the easy test. 94% of the group that was told you worked really hard, good job, chose the hard test. They wanted the challenge, right? And what this really brings home is when we give someone praise, we're handing them a label, right? We're saying, this is who you are. And Carol Dweck's book on mindset dives into the fact that we can have a fixed mindset or we can have a growth mindset. The kiddos that were told you're intelligent develop that fixed mindset where it's just something I have, right? It's not that I have to work for it. It's just I was born intelligent. The growth mindset kids are those that were praised for their effort. They embrace challenges. They see um, them as an opportunity to learn and to grow. They persist in the in the face of setbacks. They see effort as a key to mastery because, again, that's what they were reinforced by the adults for doing. And we're just kids in an adult body, right? So how we receive praise also influences our mindset. So for coaches, it's really, really important that we understand the way we give praise impacts future performances of our athletes, our students, our colleagues, and our soldiers. So we need to be very cautious with how we give it. And naming the specific strategy, the specific skill or effort that they utilize makes it more likely that they'll use it in the future. And that's how we optimize, as you call it, the art of coaching. It is an art and a science. And really the personal element is the art. The science is the research, and that's important as a foundation upon which we learn to, like, streamline our strategies, but the art is the human element. How I give one athlete effective praise will be different than another athlete effective praise. He may be a, he may be a Wolverine, and the other individual may be, what would you say is the antithesis of Wolverine, Brett? Well, it, it's contextual, right? Like, because the Wolverine isn't there, they tend they tend to be closed off. I would say the the opposite of that would be almost the the novice. They'll take any praise and they'll just kind of they can tend to overanalyze it or get overwhelmed by it because they're so excited by everything, right? Like, it's it can kind of be general. Mm-hmm. So, in that in that standpoint, the receptiveness piece, I would say the novice, they're hyper receptive to everything. Yes, they just want to take in all that praise, right? right. That's so. The way I would the way I would give praise to a Wolverine would be very different than a novice. And actually, that reminds me of something I really did want to mention while on this podcast, which is novices tend to benefit more from effective praise. Highlight what they did well. That's really going to build the fundamentals that they need to establish to continue on from novice to expert. Experts are an entirely different case. Experts have the fundamentals, and they tend to benefit more from effective criticism. So you name the specific skill, strategy, or effort that didn't necessarily go very well, and you help coach them in how to tweak it better for next time. So when we when we look at effective praise, and I mean, this is obviously something that goes well beyond, and this is the key, right? It goes weight room, boardroom, classroom, everything. When we look at that, who, and I know you mentioned Carolyn Dweck, but for everybody listening, who are some of the other key researchers in the area that you think do a really good job, not just kind of not just talking about defining the construct, but really operationalizing it? Are there any kind of favorites or resources you'd like to point them to so they can continue Mm -hmm. to learn more about that? Yes, 
I, I would definitely recommend Mindset by Carol Dweck. Fascinating research and, and a book that was really well written. Yeah, great book. I would also point them in the... I would also point them in the direction of Dr. Gabrielle Odingen. She wrote a book called Rethinking Positive Thinking. And it's all about what science knows about how we need to set goals to achieve goals. And she developed this concept called mental contrasting. And her husband, who is also a researcher, developed his own concept called implementation intention. And together they came up with this, this really good platform for goal setting. So for those of uh, you listening that work a lot with that, that very important element of coaching, how to help people set and reach goals, highly recommend Odigen's work, Rethinking Positive Thinking. In terms of stress mindset, Dr. Kelly McGonigal out of Stanford University wrote a fantastic book called The Upside of Stress. Also highly, highly recommend that. Perfect. Yeah, I appreciate that. No, I think that's good. That gives plenty of of people or plenty for them to dive into. One other thing I wanted to ask before we let you go, but I just think it's important. I I think it's been bastardized a lot. I think that people get it confused a lot. Um, But when you talk about some of the, the aspects of you know, whether it's uh, resilience, whether it's, uh, you know, effective praise, whether it's, you know, making sure that we're tapping in motivation. I'd love to kind of get your overarching thoughts on kind of self-determination theory, right? The whole idea of the A motivation, Mm -hmm. intrinsic, extrinsic, because I think sometimes people tend to get all this stuff just mixed up, especially if it's not their background in psychology. They they almost hear about all these different ways that they can uh, influence others and, and, you know, transformational leadership and everything seems to have a term. But in your mind, what really, you know, with self-determination theory getting so much of a spotlight uh, on a research perspective, do you think that's something that people, uh, like, how is it related to what we've talked about so far? Or do you think it's kind of in this this other space? And more importantly, do you think it's been represented well in, in coaching or do you think it's kind of been generalized? I'm always interested in this because people throw it around, but I feel like it's just kind of um, this thing they nod to now. They don't really talk about how they use it. They just kind of give it, you know, yeah, yeah, self-determin- self-determination theory. They're very vague in it. What are your thoughts on that overall? I love the theory. I think Jesse and Ryan have really captured the three basic human needs, which I mentioned earlier. I just didn't use the phrase self-determination theory because I didn't know that your listeners would be privy to that. So bravo. Yes, um, competency, autonomy, relatedness are really the three pegs of self-determination theory. And I think that it is a solid, solid concept for coaches, especially to integrate in their work with athletes, students, colleagues, and the, the challenge is we do miss the mark. I think people do not emphasize enough the, the relatedness component of it. Competency, you need to give effective praise and challenge those you lead properly in order for them to, to develop competency. That's why skill-to-challenge ratio has to be optimized for whoever you're coaching. I really recommend Flow by Six Cent Me High for interested in learning more about what that means. Uh, if, if athletes are over-challenged for their skill set, they're going to be anxious. If athletes are too skilled for the challenges you're giving them, they're going to be bored. They're going to lose motivation because they're not in that flow channel where they're using their skills to the very boundaries of their abilities to rise to the, the challenge that you are bringing forth to them. So I think a lot of coaches are good about focusing on the competency piece. Autonomy. We have to remember that those we lead are going to perform better when they choose to follow us, when they choose to follow our guidance, not because we're in charge of them or they have to, but because they want to, right? True leaders are those that are followed by people that would follow them when they didn't have to. That is a piece of the equation that I think is missed. The final biggest piece of the puzzle that we miss is relatedness. Self-determination theory can feel very um, cognitive, very cerebral, but there's a lot of heart in the concept. There's a lot of elements um, that highlight 
the importance of human connection. When you know, like, and trust somebody, you are going to be more influenced by them subconsciously, and they're going to be able to persuade you to do behaviors that is necessary in order for you to reach agreed upon ultimate goals, right? So I, I love that we're ending on the self-determination theory conversation because I think all coaches should really immerse themselves in this body of research and understand the importance of developing competency, autonomy, and relatedness in themselves and those that they coach. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think we had to, and you did an excellent job kind of talking about it without going too far down the rabbit hole, you know, and we'll probably do a future uh, episode completely on that. But the reason I, I felt like I had to tie that in on everything you talked about with effective praise is because, as you know, while the research has shown that praise can be perceived as positive and affirming of competence or one's work ethic, it can also be viewed as negative and controlling if people don't really use it right, right? Like if people tend to use that as a, a standalone tactic where a, a coach is always placing a great emphasis on rewards and, and for some praise is a reward, uh, no matter how they give it they're going to focus their athletes on an extrinsic reason for their sport participation or participation in any activity, which completely undermines that whole intrinsic satisfaction. And so I think that's the thing that I want to drive coaches to, and you helped me do that wonderfully, is there is a consequence. I, I tell people to ask yourself this, and you do a really good job of leaving purposeful pauses. So I'm going to do it for a minute to increase the dramatic effect. You have to think, <laughs> what are the consequences of the way that I coach? Like if you, if you don't go into each session or leave each one thinking, what are the consequences of the way that I coach? You're going to be blind to maybe that you're using these theories, whether it's effective praise or self-determination theory, you feel like you're checking these boxes, but just like you can have somebody squat or clean or snatch or do something else, it doesn't mean that them performing that action in and of it by itself is great. They've got to be doing it well. They've got to be doing it with appropriate loads. They've got to be doing it with appropriate rest periods. It's so much more complex and you understand that, you understand that the art of coaching has to be just as targeted as our physiological prescriptions. And so, yeah, I, I, I just, uh, we're blessed to have you on the show. And I think we're going to have to do a nut, like a part two where we can nerd out some more. Um, is there anything else, Rachel, that, that you wanted to touch on or anything that you think we glanced over that you think would be super critical? You've already given us so much, but I want to make sure that you get your fill. Well, I definitely feel like I have my fill, but I'm hungry for more. I'd be happy to come back and talk more about self-determination theory and all things nerd. You know, I've got a whole <laughs> other list of studies that we can we can nerd out about, and maybe I'll spend a little bit more time uh, storytelling. As that is a skill I'm working on developing within my own professional growth um, next time. Beautiful. Well, I appreciate it. Can you give everybody some insight as to how they can reach out to you? I'm sure they're going to want those books and some research articles and all those. What are the best ways for them to get a hold of you? And, and no worries about spelling, Rachel. We'll put it in the show notes. So as, as long as they do their due diligence, they'll be able to find you. But how can they reach out to you? Absolutely. I would love anyone to reach out with, uh, with questions, comments, concerns, contributions. You can reach me at Rachel at yourbestselfhawaii.com. That is my personal consulting contact information. I would love to hear from any of your listeners. Perfect. And guys, as always, remember this podcast only gets heard by people like you. If you rate it, you review it, and you tell other people about it. So we're a grassroots podcast. Uh, please tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. And uh, thank you guys. And we'll see you next time. Wait, 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 before you go glad I caught you. Listen, there's a lot of people that think that I just have social media, podcasts, and, and YouTube. Guys, there are so many more resources uh, if this stuff interests you. Um, first of all, if you haven't checked out the book, I'd be honored if you would. It's on Amazon worldwide. It's called Conscious Coaching. Uh, we have a free field guide. There's so many resources I try to provide online, free eBooks, free downloads. If you just go to artofcoaching.com, check out the free resources. There's also online courses. So whether you're interested in the coaching, communication, psychology side, we have an online course called Bought In. Uh, that is a great resource. It's research-backed, and it applies to every profession. You do not have to be a strength and conditioning coach. Literally, I use the term strength coach and athlete because that's what I do. But just like you read uh, an article or a book by a former Navy SEAL or somebody that owns a company in Silicon Valley, 
All these things are relatable to other fields. Also, if you're looking more into career management, whether that's you trying to learn more about marketing, contract negotiation, networking, resume writing, all these things that go into the messiness of trying to create and cultivate a sustainable career, we have a course for that as well. It's called Valued. Both of those are found on artofcoaching.com. Remember, the podcasts and all these other things, you know, they're I can only share so much and we try to do it in so many other mediums. So please, I'd be honored at your support. We try to make sure and donate a percentage of the proceeds every year to either fight Alzheimer's, uh, cancer research. We, uh, we donate to local police forces. We try to do a lot of different things and we can only do that with your support. Thanks again for listening to the podcast and I hope you enjoy those resources.